We're so glad that you've tuned in to our Rolling Hills Community Church Sermon Podcast. I'm Matthew Brown, and I'm the college and young adults pastor here at Rolling Hills. We're currently in our series, The Greatest Adventure, and today we're in Exodus 12, the story of the liberation of the Israelites. Our God is a God of freedom, and we hope that today's sermon encourages you on that promise. Now, here's Pastor Nick. Good morning. I appreciate that. Hey, happy 4th of July. I want to send a special welcome this morning to the kids that are in the room. We're excited to have elementary school kids worshiping with us today, and next week we'll kick back off, and they actually get to go back up to their normally scheduled programming um, with a zoo day, I hear, um, which is really fun. Some of y'all just decided you want to volunteer in kids ministry now, didn't you? The zoo will be coming and bringing animals for them to like look at and touch and learn about as a part of their lesson that day. Y'all like, hmm, I can be one of those core team members. You can sign up today. You know, it's now generally accepted um, that the Declaration of Independence was, in fact, not signed on July the 4th, 1776. I did not know this. I I didn't know. I had no idea that it was actually proposed and adopted on July the 2nd, the date that John Adams actually thought we should be celebrating for all perpetuity. Um, And when July 4th happened, the Continental Congress, like, adopted it into action, but it wasn't actually physically signed by any of those famous people who signed it until probably August, maybe even my birthday, I don't know. That makes the fireworks a little different today, doesn't it? You know, there's a lot that I don't understand about what went on a couple hundred years ago on the 2nd or the 4th of July or in August of that year. Um, but I still understand what we're celebrating. And I still understand what this day means for us. But even though I understand what we're celebrating today, and even though I understand what this means for us, I still don't quite understand it to the same degree that, say, someone who fought and served in our military does. I would say that they understand it a degree higher than I do. I still don't understand this day, and I don't understand the freedom that we celebrate, even though I understand the freedom that we celebrate a lot. I still don't understand it to the same degree that perhaps an immigrant or a refugee does, because they understand it to a whole different degree than perhaps I do. There's a lot of things in this life that that we understand, but maybe not to the degree that someone else does. I've read this Exodus story a a lot in my life. I took a class on it in seminary that literally was not just a survey of the Old Testament, but really a survey of just the book of Exodus. I've taught from it. I have no idea how many times, but yet I still don't understand it. As much as I do, I don't the same way that a Jewish person would. You know, the book of Exodus is, is, is derived from a, a Latin name, which literally just means exiting slavery, which is why the book would be aptly so named. But in Hebrew, it's not so much. Hebrew, the names for the books of the Bible, particularly the first five books, the Torah, are named for the first words that are in them. And so in the book of Genesis, it's Bereshit. And that makes a whole lot of sense because Bereshit literally means in the beginning, the story of creation. And you can look at the book of Genesis and say, hey, as a survey of what that book is about, the title really seems to go along with it. But in Exodus, the very first words are, these are the names. And so the Hebrew title for the book is Shemot. 
It's like, what? That doesn't mean we know that this whole book is about God's people being rescued and restored and redeemed and made into a people as they approach the land of promise that God gave them. So Exodus makes a whole lot of sense, but these are the names? Maybe not so much. If we look at back at the author of who wrote these books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, it's the author Moses, the key character that we're studying this summer. We've already seen Moses being born and placed in a basket by his mother so that it can float safely down the river as opposed to drowning inside it. And the princess picks him up. She takes him back to the palace. It's this really grand rags to riches kind of story. And then he grows up. There's conflict in the house. He flees and goes to the land of Midian. He's minding his own business like a shepherd. He's called by a bush that's on fire but doesn't consume to go and rescue God's people. He cites problem after problem after problem of the reasons why he should not in fact be the one that goes, but then he ends up going anyway. God sends plague after plague after plague, like frogs, gnats, lights, and all kinds of gross things onto Egypt in order for the Pharaoh to let the people go but he relents every single time and wants to keep them as his slaves. The final plague is the one we talked about last week where the death angel comes and all of Egypt's firstborn are killed and Israel's are spared because they pasted the blood on the door frames of their house, signaling that the angel should pass over that place and spare the lives of the children inside. And finally, we get to the point in chapter 12 today where Pharaoh is done mourning the life of his own son. He says, go, get out, flee. You all can leave. And as much as I understand about the book of Exodus, I definitely don't understand why they started where they did. You think about it, Moses, why didn't you just start with your life? If you wanted to go back that far, you, you could, you could like not just start at the burning bush where the real action takes place. You can, you can go back and tell the story of your birth and how your mama placed you in a little tiny basket, which is so, so super sweet. That's great. But why go back that chapter further? Why include the Hebrew midwives who spared the baby's lives in the first place? Why include the Pharaoh that enslaved Egypt? And why go all the way back to the names of the people who came out of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, that holy family line to begin with. Because for us to fully understand the power of this story, for us to to really understand the way that, that a Jewish person would understand, we have to attach the Exodus to the covenant. We have to attach the Exodus to the covenant. For us to understand where it was that God was taking them, we have to first remember what he promised them. So we land today, um, a people that are on the move. They've now walked out of Egypt and they're moving towards a promised land. And in Exodus chapter 13, starting with verse one, (laughs) literally like the day after they had painted blood on their door frames of their homes and marched out in freedom and safety, these words come. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me every firstborn male. Now, now the firstborn is important. Why, why is it important in this story? Well, it's important in the story because it attaches to the fact that Egypt just lost all of her firstborns. They, they lost their firstborn because they wouldn't obey. And now Israel was going to dedicate their firstborn as an act of obedience. It was synonymous with the idea of best or primary. I'm not saying that if you're a second or third child, you're not the best. In fact, you probably are. Your parents like learned a whole lot more in between like your older sibling, which was all just trial and error. Like you really probably are better in terms of, but but in this culture and in this day and in this age, that, that, that firstborn was synonymous with the idea of most important or primary. So to dedicate your firstborn to God was to say, hey God, I wanna give you my most important thing. Moses told that to God in Exodus chapter four. He said, Israel is my firstborn. 
And so it was a connection point to the fact that Israel, God's people, were his most holy, important, and prized possession. You see, if we want to understand the Exodus, we got to first go back to the covenant. If we want to understand where they're going, we've got to revisit the promise. And so God says, consecrate to me every firstborn male. The first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether human or animal. Then Moses said to the people, commemorate the day, the day that you came out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, because the Lord brought you out of it with a mighty hand. Side note, eat nothing that is made of yeast. Attaches back to that unleavened bread, bread that has no yeast in it, bread that doesn't have time to rise. The reason it doesn't have time to rise is because you got to pack your bags, put your shoes on, and get out of town, friends. The fact that the bread didn't have time to rise reminds people that they had to get out fast and that they had to go. There's two really important words in just those three verses. If you're a person that likes to underline verses in your Bible or highlight verses on the page, you can underline the, the word in verse two, which is consecrate or dedicate. You see, because when a moment matters, when a moment matters, we consecrate, we dedicate, we, 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 we sanctify that to the Lord. When, when a moment matters, we, we don't just consecrate, we also commemorate. The other word you can underline is in verse three. It says, Moses said to the people, commemorate this day. Consecrate literally means to sanctify or to set apart, to prepare, to dedicate. You guys are gonna have some, some fun, fancy 4th of July dinners today. And here's the deal, nobody is gonna serve caviar on a paper plate. And you're also, conversely, probably not gonna put a hot dog, which is what we're having, on your fine china, right? There's a, a place for everything. This idea of, of, of consecrate to be set apart is that dish that you only bring out on special occasions, that, that recipe that you only use on holidays. That's us, consecrated, set apart, reserved for special use. And that idea of commemorating, it's the Hebrew word zakar, and it literally means to remember, to recall, but then to make a memorial of. It's not just, oh, I remember what I had for lunch yesterday. It's not just, oh, I remember what I wore last Sunday. I've been known to repeat the same outfits week after week after week. It's all based on what fits. I mean, that's a side note. Okay, like, it's not just to remember something as if it's a fact. It's to memorialize it like a holiday, like an independence kind of holiday. And so Moses goes on to describe to the people that when you enter the land, you're to observe a, a seven-day feast, a week-long holiday celebration, not just to remember, but to memorialize and to commemorate the fact that God rescued you you see, when a moment matters, we set it apart. We put it in a special place of honor. When a moment matters, we commemorate it, we memorialize it, we holiday it, we tradition it, we celebrate it in big, big ways. When something matters, we don't just consecrate it and commemorate it, we also make sure that it continues. We make sure that moment continues. It says in verse eight, on that day, tell your son. Hey, when you're having this week-long celebration in the land, tell your son, I do this, because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. This observance will be like a, a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead that this law of the Lord is to be on your lips for the Lord brought you out of Egypt with his mighty hand. When a moment matters, we, we make sure that it continues. And, and I'm not a historian or, or really much of a, a theologian 
But it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that this is the pivotal moment that mattered in the life of God's people in all the Old Testament. Passage after passage after passage, song after song after song, illustration after illustration after illustration, all throughout the books that would follow would tie Israel back to this moment when God rescued her from slavery in Egypt. So it passed down from generation to generation to generation because when a moment matters, you make certain that it continues. It says in verse 14 of this passage, in the days to come when your son asks, when they ask questions like, why do we do things this way? What does this mean? Say to him, with a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. When, when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed the firstborn of both people and animals in Egypt. This is why I sacrifice. This is why I sacrifice to the Lord, the first male offspring of every womb and redeem each of my firstborn sons. And it will be, again, that word sign. It's the Hebrew word oath, and it means a distinguishing mark like a birthmark, something that you would use to, to tell two sets of twins apart, something that would signal one is different from the other, this, this mark on your hand and a symbol on your forehead that the Lord brought us out of Egypt with his mighty hand. This is the reason why we consecrate. This is the reason why we commemorate. This is the reason why we hope these moments continue because we have to continue to remember what God did. And if we tell that story, it, it outlines us. This is why... In the Shema, the most important passage in Hebrew scripture, the most important confession of faith in Deuteronomy chapter six, where, where, where the people say, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. We're gonna love him with everything that we have. And then Moses prescribes to people, these words that he gave, this law that he gave is to be on your hearts, inscribed in you. And then he goes on to talk about how it's supposed to be passed down from generation to generation. It says these commandments today are to be on your hearts. You're to impress them on your children. You're to talk about them. They're to be on your lips. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads and then write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. This sign on their hands and on their foreheads, it, it became a literal box, a, a literal box that the God-fearing observant Jew would have along their wrist or on their forehead, this tiny little box that contained a piece of the law wrapped up in a scroll that they could always have as a reminder. Everybody that you see walking through Israel, even today, with these boxes, these headdresses, these wrists, those are phylacteries, and they're always supposed to signify as a sign, hey, this person belongs to Hebrew God. We're to, we're to take these moments, these memories, and to wear them as signs so that we never forget what who? What God did with, with his mighty hand. You know that instruction in Deuteronomy, write them on the door frames of your houses. This was said to a wandering people in a wilderness who did not have houses. A bunch of homeless people wandering around for 40 years who did not have homes of their own. And can you imagine the reflection that, whoa, the last time I had a house, you told me I had to paint it with blood. Now that I'm going to get a new house, I just get to paint it with the words, declaring to the world who you are and who we are in you. A sign for all to see and to celebrate that we're a people that have been rescued by God. Shemot. These are the names. These are the names of the people who, who came out of our family and into the land of Egypt. And yes, they ended up as slaves, but now these families multiplied by hundreds of thousands 
are now marching out into freedom, and each and every name counts. We, we attach the exodus to the covenant so that we'll understand that it's only God who did it, that we're remembering the promise that he made. For these people to believe what God had promised them, they had to see the, the power and the love of God who promised it. When they marched out of Egypt, the journey, it's in your notes, the, the journey wasn't over. It was really only starting, and God led every step of the way. Chapter 13, verse 17, it says, when, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea, and the Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. In, in verse 20, it says, after leaving Succoth, they camped at Etham on the edge of the desert, and by the day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. I just said fire like fire, like I'm, that's, a, that's the North Carolina coming out. Okay, and, and a pillar of fire by night to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. It says, neither the pillar of the cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. They took the long way around because God knew better. He knew that the shorter distance would be the scarier route and he was gonna have to take them the long way. I have kind of a story about coming to Nashville. In 2005, I was living in Charleston. We had left Charlotte. We were living in Charleston, South Carolina, working for a Lifeway camp. And I encountered two really incredible leaders um, that summer who kind of mentored me and shepherded me as a campus pastor to teach teenagers. And we prayed all summer long where God would have us go next. And through that summer, we connected with a pastor down in Florida um, whose people got together and they interviewed me and they called me to be the youth pastor um, down in Daytona. So we moved to the beach. That sounded like a lot of fun, right? Right after I had said yes to that position, I was approached not once but twice um, by those two different mentors, by those two different leaders in my life, giving me opportunities to come to Nashville. And having just accepted the job in Florida, I just didn't feel like that'd be very right. Like, it just didn't feel like that's like, you're not a person of integrity, your word is not your word. And I was like, oh no, thank you, I'm so flattered, thank you for considering me, but I just took a job in Florida. And so Susan and I went down there and we lived for, and served for two years. And to say that it was awful is to put it mildly. And then two years later, we landed in Tennessee serving at Rolling Hills, one of the churches that we had been invited to consider in the first place. God took us the long way around in order to get us here. And I can't imagine what it would have been like. What would have been scary? What would have been different? What would have been difficult had we come two years earlier? I may have not lasted two weeks, who knows? But God took us the long way around in order to get us the shorter of the distances. Now, the people in Israel camping out on the banks of that Red Sea, looking at the water in front of them, knowing that somehow they had to get to the other side of it. Now, circumstances had changed because Pharaoh had once again, you know, he had a pattern of changing his mind, right? He had once again changed his mind and he was gonna come after the people. And so they've got water on one side and an, a, a charging army on the other with chariots and horses. And, and they literally look at Moses and they say, were there no graves in Egypt? It would have been better for us to die there as slaves than out here in this 
wilderness. And they started complaining and grumbling in the moment because they did not see the possibility of a way out. The God who had consistently led them, even though the journey was longer, put them in exactly the spot where they needed to be to see his power and love in the most dramatic of ways. When we moved here in 2007, it was after a nationwide housing crisis. Remember? People couldn't give houses away, not so much in Tennessee, right? Things have really changed here in the last couple of years. You look at what the market is out there in Nashville alone, it's insane. When 2007, we moved here unable to sell the home that we had bought in Florida. So we're looking at God like the Israelites. What'd you do, Moses? Didn't we tell you this was going to happen? Why didn't you just leave us in Egypt, but you brought us here to drown. Here we are looking at God. We told you this would happen. We should have left Florida and go back home to Charlotte, but here we are in Tennessee, unable to sell our home in Florida. We're just going to lose everything. And before we take the high road today as a people who look back on Israel every time they complained, spoiler alert, they're going to continue complaining over the next couple of Sunday morning sermons over and over and over again, that God's not going to show up, that God's not going to provide, that he's not going to feed. And before we take that high road, that historical one that looks back and judges all the people that came before us because we know that we would have done it so much better, take a moment to examine the own moments that you've had in your life where God took you on a journey and you followed him and it landed you squarely in a spot where you just didn't see a way out. I'm raising my hand. Why'd you bring us here? What are we gonna do? Just lose it all? How are we gonna feed our family? How are we gonna afford these bills? What are we gonna do with this? What, what is it that you're gonna do? How are you gonna provide? And, and you know the part of the story that comes next. That God looked at that water and split it wide open. When you think about the long way, when you, when you think about the long journey, when you think about why the Red Sea, why that as the path to freedom, it's on your way to freedom, you've got to get the oppression out. They've been slaves in Egypt for 430 years. That's 430 years of you must do this or else. 430 years of you can't do this or else. 430 years of you are nothing but our property. It takes more than a declaration. It takes more than a proclamation to make a person free. Somehow or another, you gotta squeeze the oppression out. The legal system in Egypt was not good for them and God was gonna circle them around a mountain where in the coming weeks, we will see him give them a legal system that would be good for them, but not only good for them, but good for all of the generations that would come after them and not only good for all of the generations that would come after them, but even all of the nations that surrounded them. But in order to enjoy that, this is the good part, they had to be free. So God used a a cloud by the daytime and a, a fire by the nighttime and led them to the bank of the Red Sea and with raging water on one side and a pursuing army on the other. The people that felt doomed were about to see God show up in a way that they had not yet seen in spite of all the plagues, in a way that they had not yet seen. 
Israel was not free because they were no longer in Egypt. Israel would only be free once they placed their confidence in God. As much as we'll celebrate today, I'm going to eat my hot dog. I'm going to try to find a place for us to watch some fireworks that isn't too trafficy or crowded, like, you know, because I'm going to be, you know, a little bit sensitive about all that. Like, I'm, I'm going to try to find some ways to observe this day. But just like Israel was not free because they left Egypt, you and I are not free just because we live in America. It, it's not our, our constitutional rights. That is a misunderstanding of freedom. Take it down a step further. We're, we're not free just because you pay off all your student loans and you own a home. That's a, the misunderstanding of freedom. If you fast forward to Exodus chapter 14, and you get to verse 13, this, this people that sat there afraid, not knowing where their next breath was going to come from, God said to them, do not be afraid. Stand firm, and you will see the deliverance of the Lord. The deliverance the Lord will bring you today the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. You might want to pause for just a second because that's some wise advice. That's some, hey, drink a 20 ounce of calm down and read these words one more time and, and pay attention to what they say. Don't be afraid. Don't, don't be scared. Don't be afraid. Stand firm. Don't be afraid, like, like stand firm. Say exactly where you are, confident in what the Lord is gonna do today. Look and watch what he's gonna do. He will fight for you. Just be still. Like that's maybe good advice that we could take in any situation in life. Don't be afraid, be still. Just, just calm down and wait to see what God alone can do. See, because at the end of the story, it's in your notes this morning, Israel wasn't free because they fled. Israel was free because God fought. He did everything. We're not, as a people, set apart because we're special, but ultimately because we are spared. Deuteronomy chapter 7 summarizing what God did for these people and bringing them out of slavery, he, he says, the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples. For in fact, you were the fewest of all the peoples. God didn't choose them. He didn't pick Israel. He didn't look at them and, and select them out of a lineup. This is not a, a kid's afternoon pickup game of flag football on a ground where you're looking for the biggest and the fastest kid. This is not a moment where their credentials got them anything. God did not pick them because they were the most numerous. God didn't choose you because you're big and strong. If you fast forward to Deuteronomy chapter 9, he sums it up even more. He says, understand then that it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord God is giving you this land to possess, for you are a stiff-necked people. We can take that to mean directly at us. Like, hey, look at you. You didn't have this blessing. You didn't get this land. You didn't get this freedom because you're big and because you're strong or even because you are right and because you're good. Back to Deuteronomy 7, it says this, but it was because the Lord loved you and because he kept the oath that he swore to your ancestors, that he broke you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of the king in Egypt. And then it says, know therefore that the Lord your God is God. 
He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. That's a word we need to hear kind of often. Maybe take out the we and just substitute the me. That's a word I need to hear kind of often. God didn't choose me because I was big and strong or, or because I was right and because I was good but because he ultimately loved. Israel wasn't free because they fled. Israel wasn't free because they earned it or because they deserved it, but only because God granted it. So Moses stretched out his hands. You can read about it through the remainder of Exodus chapter 14. He he stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind, and he turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. Not so much for the Egyptian army that continued to pursue, because when Israel got to the other side of it, God called Moses to raise up his staff one more time, and the waters came crashing down, and not a horse, not a chariot, not, a, not an Egyptian survived. But it says in verse 29 that the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground. And that day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. Ooh, that's a scary story. Sorry, kids. Parents, you'll have to explain this when we get home. Ultimately, this story, this picture of the Exodus triumph and and, and the Egyptian tragedy are, are pictures of gospel glory. 2 Timothy 1.9 says he saved us and he's called us to a holy life not because of anything we've done. I didn't choose you because you were numerous. I didn't choose you because you're right. In fact, you're stiff-necked. He saved us and called us to a holy life not because of anything that we've done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. If the Israelites wanted to understand the Exodus, they had to relate it back to the promise. Don't forget the promise. Everything that's happened, these are the names. Everything that's happened, babies in the river. Everything that's happened, Pharaoh that's mean. Everything that's happened, make more bricks. Everything that's happened, plague after plague. Everything that's happened, wall of water. Everything that's happened has been for the glory of God so that he might rescue a people that he chose not because they're good, or because they deserved it, but because he's good and because he loves. And the very worst that any of us could ever do is to forget what that freedom means and ultimately where it came from. Deuteronomy 6, after the Shema, after the pass it down to generation to generation, after the tie it on your hands and on your foreheads and write these words on the gate, right after that, God says this, be careful. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I don't think it would have been possible for those people to forget that Red Sea moment. You couldn't either. Like you would visit it in your dreams. Wall of water on both sides. You're not going to forget that that happened. 
when the whole land is covered up with like crazy locusts, you're not going to forget that that happened. When all of Egypt's animals get these crusty, nasty boils on their skin and, and none of you do, you're not going to forget that that happened. When the river turns to blood, you're not going to forget that that happened. You're not going to forget that the wall of water happened anymore that you're going to forget the calluses that are on your hands because of the bricks that you had to make and because of the beatings that you got at the hand of an Egyptian army that oppressed you and persecuted you. Like you're not going to forget, but you may fail to remember and to keep it in its proper place. You won't forget the things that happened, but you might sometimes forget what they mean and forget who did it. Because ultimately, it was always God. The people didn't deserve it. The people didn't earn it. The people are only getting to be witnesses of a God who loves them, fulfilling his promise to give them freedom. Freedom's a a really good thing, but enjoying it can quickly turn into abusing it. You see that, right? Like, that's, that's all over the news. Turn it on. People are breaking laws. People are like mean to other people. There's all kinds of like, like, yeah, racism and persecution. There's all kinds of difficulty in the world. And, and so it does not take any sort of special keen eye into the human psyche to know that enjoying freedom often leads to abusing it, that celebrating it can often lead to idolizing it. And the way to keep freedom in its proper place is to to live it out with a well-stewarded grace that never, ever forgets that it ultimately came from God and God alone. In Israel's case, and in our spiritual state, freedom was way back then, and freedom was today, right now, from one place and one place only, the great God of this universe. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. We didn't work for it. It doesn't happen just because we live where we live or we're born where we're born or we are who we are. True freedom, the, the only kind that counts, comes because God promised it and God miraculously provided it. And so we're gonna humbly receive it and even cherish it, but also sacrificially steward it for the good of others. If your freedom isn't a call to figure out how to set somebody else free, then you really don't know freedom. Israel didn't know God. They didn't understand the Exodus until they could attach it first to his promise. And you and I are the same. We, we don't know and understand and get to experience true freedom until we can attach it to the promises of God and trust him and him alone. Would you pray with me? Father, we're grateful for today. We're grateful for today and, and, and what it means in the life of this specific nation. But God, for a moment, would you, would you help us to go grander? Would you help us to understand bigger? From the perspective of, of the whole world, right here today, but, but, but even bigger than that, from, from the perspective of the whole world, past, present, and future, would you help us to take a moment to celebrate the freedom that comes only because you gave us your son, Jesus? It's always been attached to the promise since the beginning of time. 
Would you help us to understand that once we experience that freedom, it's an opportunity to celebrate it in such a way that offers it to others. We don't get salvation because we're good. We don't get forgiveness because we deserve it. We only get that freedom because you gave it. And so we tell you today that every good thing comes from Jesus, and we're thankful for your son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to our Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast, part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network, where you can find podcasts like Making History Parenting Podcasts, Men's Leadership Network, Rolling Hills Women's As You Go Podcast, and more. If you want to learn more about what's going on in the life of Rolling Hills, download our Rolling Hills app or visit our website at rollinghills.church. From there, you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook to stay up to date on what's happening and ways you can connect. We're thankful for you.